On this episode of the podcast, a peek under the covers of a dirty book. We travel from Kenya to Samoa to Korea to Innsbruck. And Jared's dream of meeting a professional model finally comes true. Spoiler alert, it's a dude. I'm Jared Nichols. I'm Paul Tulin. And this is the best pandemic ever. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to another fantastic, life-changing episode of the Best Pandemic Ever podcast with Paul Tulin. See, you thought I was going to try and jack up your name again, but I didn't. You thought I was going to interrupt you again. I did, and I wanted to throw you for a loop. So we like to play mind games on this show, and it's usually just me and Paul trying to throw each other off. So, you know, pandemic, right? You don't have very many friends, so you go with what you got. Uh, anyway, we got a real special guest today, and I'm actually going to let Paul introduce this guest because these guys have known each other, and uh, I just met him, so I don't want to mess this up. And uh, yeah, Paul, so why don't you take it away? Tell us about who our guest is today. Yeah, so Nathan and I met at uh, the Tuck School of Business Next Step program, which is this very unique program that helps people uh, transition into what's next, and it's a weird combination of veterans and Olympic athletes and people kind of scratch their head about how do you put, you know, what's the similarity there? But the reality is you have two groups of people who have been singularly focused on, you know, one thing for a very long time. And as it comes to a conclusion, they're all asking themselves, well, you know, what do I do next? So that's how we, that's how we met. Um, everything about Nathan is, uh, should be, you know, should be a red flag for me, right? Guys, and you know, he's guys an Ivy League graduate. He's a model. He's a photographer. He travels the world as a skeleton athlete. Like, I should be like, who, who is this guy? But, you know, immediately when we met up there, um, we just kind of hit it off because he's such just such a good guy. Um, and, uh, you know, just personable and, and kind and, and smart. And um, I've been lucky enough to somehow still uh, been able to stay connected and, uh, you know, we worked together a little bit on an initiative to, to get a third colleague of ours who, who produces these, um, these socks to raise money for, for cancer. We had a little initiative that we did together to, um, to get some of those delivered to uh, pediatric wards. And, and Nathan was a really big part of that. Um, and so, yeah, I, I mean, I could go on and on and on. I, I won't. I just uh, wanted to let you know, you know, what our connection was. And uh, well, Nathan. Well, tell them the story. Tell them the story about how you were working in the lunchroom at Dartmouth and serving him food. Tell us about what it, it was. I was the head of the janitorial staff. <laughs> you know, son of a bitch. So, yeah, so, um, yeah, so, so very happy to welcome uh, Nathan Icon. I call him Icon uh, Crumpton. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's great to have you, man. Great to be on the show. Thank you guys both for inviting me on. I'm, I'm happy to be here all the way from Innsbruck, Austria at the moment. Yeah, well, so that's kind of the thing, right? I was talking to Jared. I was like, look, man, so Nathan sends out a holiday greeting. You sent it out pretty much every year, I think, or at least since I've known you. I tried you to. Yeah, this, I tried yeah. to. Um, yeah. and, he, and he's an author, too, by the way. Um, has, has, have you completed that book? Is that book complete? I've completed the manuscript, and I've gone through two rounds of editing, but I'm still figuring out what the best publishing path is. There's still a couple of hurdles in the publishing world, which we can talk about and get into, because there's... There's some unique aspects about the book um, that make it a challenge to publish. But yes, the, the full manuscript has been finished. Yeah, well, you've self-described it as the love child of The Economist in, the 50, in Fifty Shades of Grey. And I've read some of it. And yeah, that's pretty much what it is. Um, yes, I'm, I'm sure that presents some challenges. Anyway, my point being that, you know, he writes really well and he writes these just really funny and warm, 
form and, and interesting updates and they're and they're lengthy and and to Nathan's credit it's always got like the the short version like here's just the summary like an executive summary and then he's like okay if you want to I think it's called the grab it beverage and settle in version which is really really detailed and when I saw this one's this year's you know I expected the kind of you know oh I was I was sequestered here and I never really left Utah and you know this went sideways and that went sideways and man it was nothing like that I mean Nathan's year has fits the best pandemic ever podcast ethos so perfectly because I don't even know where to begin right from you know either you know starting with your separation from the league that you're associated with or you know writing your book or going to American Samoa or the effort that you you know the effort that you uh, had to 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 get into the medical supply chain. I, I mean, you've done so much this year. I, I kind of don't know where to begin, but I guess maybe I could just ask you, wh what was the highlight out of all that? Because there's a lot there, man. Oh, shoot. I, the highlight, I, I'd i be hard-pressed to pick one. And first of all, I can state that I certainly didn't plan my year to be that way. And I don't think anybody planned 2020 to be that way. Um, and it just, it, things just sort of unfolded in this really bizarre manner. And I, I saw some opportunities and I decided to to take them and just run with it as best as that I could. Um, as for the highlight though, I, gosh, I don't, I don't know if I could pick just one. From, from the athletic perspective, it was certainly uh, a really unique experience competing for American Samoa. And I qualified for the world championships uh, just on my own. It was the first time that uh, anyone had done that for American Samoa in the sport of skeleton racing. Uh, I won the first ever uh, medals in a Winter Olympic sport for the island territory uh, in international um, Winter Olympic sport competition. And qualifying for the finals and uh, finishing in a reasonably good place was was maybe the highlight from from one perspective. Uh, finishing the book, though, that like that that was also another huge one too. That I've been working on that book for about three years now. Paul, you were one of the first people to hear about it, uh, to and to read some of the the early parts of it, and and to get feedback from our classmates uh, at Tuck, uh, and and may I don't know, it's a toss up maybe between those two. If I can get the book published, then maybe that I think will be the the bigger achievement. But that's still uh, still to be determined. Do me a favor. Explain how you ended up going to American Samoa for you know to 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 be a an a representative athlete for them. Like that always sure. that always is. Frankly, it kind of baffles me when I see people competing and they you know they're like oh the and this is obviously a, a little bit of a of a pedestrian example. But, you know, the, the the Jamaican bobsled team, well, that's not a good example. But it's always somebody who they're like, oh, yeah, they live in Chicago and they go to such and such university. You know what I mean? And it always that that kind of always befuddles me. So how did you end up there? Sure. Yeah, yeah. So it's it was a circuitous path, uh, as one might imagine, as my entire life has been, I think. So I was with Team USA as a skeleton racer for eight years, uh, two Olympic cycles, two quads, as they call it. Um, had highs and lows like any sport would, but ultimately it was it was a terrible falling out. It, the the treatment that I had on on Team USA, unfortunately, uh, was really quite terrible. Um, and it ended really tragically with this massive legal battle. Um, it, it was the battle itself was between a former teammate of mine 
and the American Federation. And it went all the way to the American Arbitration Association, so the highest level of arbitration in the United States. Um, but I got dragged into this dispute uh, as the the third party, the, the affected athlete of this. Um, and so I had to hire lawyers into this whole process. I had to be represented at this arbitration hearing. Um, and it, it, it went it, it went very poorly, uh, to, to cut a very long story short. Um, and, and I was treated very poorly in the process as well. And I, I had had it sort of up to What were they doing to you guys? Point. Like, what was the impetus behind the falling out? If, I mean, if you don't so mind. It's, it, there's no one single thing. I would say it was a, a gradual compiling of multiple factors that always ended up going south. And it's, it's, it's not unique to the, the sport of skeleton either. It's something that you've seen in many of the other sports and the way that these institutions, these sporting institutions can take advantage of these athletes because athletes have very little optionality in terms of a recourse or in terms of uh, what they can do to escape the situation. You saw it in the gymnastic sexual abuse scandals. You saw it in the uh, swimming sexual abuse scandals. You've seen it in the repeated uh, disenfranchisement of athletes and their financial situations. Um, and overall, the, the environment has, it, for most of my career with Team USA, has been in a, a really bad position for most athletes. Um, I, I would say, uh, in all fairness, though, it's at the very top level at the U.S. Olympic Committee. In the past few years, they they had uh, changed CEOs at the top, and the new CEO, Sarah Hersland, I think she's made a lot of progress in the right direction. Unfortunately, I think it was just a little bit too late and too little for my own career, personally. Um, and so that, that, then there was... In my back to my case, it was, it was this massive legal battle in the aftermath of which I was treated very poorly. I had uh, I had done nothing wrong. I had achieved my goals. I was ranked top two in the country. I was exactly where I needed to be to qualify for the World Cup and the World Championship. Uh, then this whole legal altercation started. The teammate who had filed the complaint against the USA Bobsled Skeleton Federation ended up winning in arbitration. He had successfully argued his case with his lawyer. Um, and the result of that was that I got kicked off the World Cup team. Um, I, got, I lost my world championship spot. And, and to some degree, I was OK with that because I had to agree to the arbitration itself. And I, I had, to, as I said, hire my own lawyers and have the representation. And so I could live with that. That's fine. You roll the dice with the arbitration and, and you have to accept the outcome as long as the arbitration is not uh, capricious or arbitrary in, in its ruling. Um, I was fine with that. But in the aftermath of that, the USA Bobsled Skeleton Federation, they, they admitted fault. They, they apologized to me. The CEO called me on the phone. He apologized. The director of operations met with me and apologized. They realized this was our fault. Nathan, we screwed you over. We're really, really sorry. Two days later after all of that, they cut my health insurance. They cut my stipend. They cut my access to all the privileges uh, from the World Cup team. And they basically said, yes, it's our fault and we're sorry. But by the way, we're kicking you to the curbside and revoking all of your privileges. And it was at that point where I said, this is this is absolutely enough. I, I am I am not going to take anything. Uh, that's a lot There's of no stuff way. to get. That's a lot of stuff to get pulled out from under your feet rather suddenly. Totally. Ab absolutely. And, and the other point was there is precedent that if you don't if for some reason you don't meet that 
that bar of being in the top three by the end of the season, there is ample precedent within the Federation that you're given a six-month extension on all those privileges to re-earn your spot. And it, it happened to Kyle Tress, who's a USA Olympian, to Katie Ulander, a USA Olympian, to Annie O'Shea, a longtime teammate of mine. They were given that six-month extension on all those privileges uh, when they hadn't met one of the standards. And for some reason, for the first time, when I didn't meet the standard, I was denied all of those uh, the extensions and the privileges, even though I had actually done my job and I had met these standards and I, and I had fulfilled my, my end of the bargain. And that, that was the, the final straw for me where I said, there's absolutely no way I'm, I'm tolerating this. And, and so I left. And, and so what were the options for me? Cause this, this is where the rub really comes in. This is where it's really difficult for athletes to figure out what to do because most of the time, unlike in say the NBA or other professional sports, if you're not satisfied with your situation, if you're LeBron James and you don't like playing in Cleveland, you can go to Miami or you can go to L.A. And there's there's optionality there with Olympic sport athletes. That optionality is not as easily achieved because you're usually tied to to your citizenship. You have you have to have citizenship to compete in an Olympic sport at the Olympics. You have to have citizenship. So for me, there were two options. You, you know, I, there's no way I was going to stay with Team USA. What could I do? The first place I looked was Kenya, actually. So I was born in Kenya. Uh, I'm, uh, I actually have a Kenyan birth certificate. Uh, I learned Swahili growing up. You're running around, and uh, <laughs> of course you and did. So, and, <laughs> and so I actually I flew. <clears throat> excuse me. I flew all the way over to Kenya, and I talked to their uh, their various ministries: Ministry of Sport, Ministry of Immigration. And I, I said, "Look, I, could you guys?" Could you guys take a skeleton athlete, skeleton racer? And uh, it, I got some possible yeses, some possible noes, and, and ultimately it didn't work out. And I was just like, shoot, where where can I possibly go? Uh, and so then I started looking at heritage connections. And so then I, that's what brought me to American Samoa. And I have Polynesian on my mom's side, from, from my mom's mom, uh, my grandmother. Um, and through that, the American Samoan Federation, they recognize people uh, with Polynesian connections to be able to represent the territory. And I sent them an email just sort of out of the blue. And I said, would you guys be interested in, in a skeleton racer? And they said, absolutely. So I booked a flight, flew, this is all pre-COVID by the way. This is, yeah, this I was gonna say, the, when did all this transpire? This, this was uh, the summer before COVID, so uh, okay. 2019 summer. So that, that winter going into COVID, was my first summer competing for American Samoa. Uh, but yeah, I flew all the way down to the islands, set up my PO box, my residency, got my driver's license, had to resurrect the old federation from the 90s uh, or early 2000s, and then uh, install a new board and get uh, bylaws set in place and basically set this whole thing up from scratch. And then I was able to compete, had that whole season of competition, and COVID was hitting in the middle of that season, um, it, basically early part of 2000 uh, was when we first started noticing these cases and uh, lockdowns started happening in March, where, where, which was just after you, our- Yeah, where so, were right, you physically located? That, that was, that's also sort of the interesting part was that I was in Korea when the outbreak reached Korea. So the day the day that Korea had recorded its first coronavirus case, uh, I was doing two races in uh, in Pyeongchang there, 
And then I had to, I had a few extra days in Seoul afterwards. And so I, I got to see how the Koreans had responded to the pandemic. It gave me a really unique insight into the way that they reacted uh, to the pandemic and in stark contrast to some of the other countries and unfortunately the way America reacted as well. Um, and so and it was a, just a night and day difference that I, that, that I could see how um, some countries reacted versus the other. And a very, very poignant first person experience for me. But I flew back from Korea, went back to Europe. We had world championships in Germany. Uh, and just we squeezed in world championships right before things really started shutting down. Uh, I usually take an end of season vacation. Uh, I had a trip planned to Italy for 10 days, canceled that, went to Switzerland instead, and then went back to the States. And then that was the, my off season started in, uh, in March there. And then that's when that's when all sorts of other adventures started happening. Yeah, it's I know it's it's hard. It must a, be difficult. Yeah, it's hard for a model who has to cancel his trip to Italy to go to Switzerland. I I, I get Definitely. it. I feel it. I feel, I feel you. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure everybody listening to this podcast is like, yeah, I totally relate. I can completely, yeah. completely. I remember that no, one time. So, I had so you like came that back, happened. and then you fell headlong into this, you know, into this um, this medical supply chain involvement. Right. So, exactly. I mean, which you have no background in, right? I mean. You just land in these weird things that I'm always like, and I remember reading like last year, I was like, oh, that's weird. How did Nathan get involved in that? You know, and it's the same thing this year. I was like, what? What? So, yeah, up to and including being shut down, I, I think if I if I if I interpreted your description properly, up to and including being shut down by um, the office of the vice president who who basically took you guys out of that business. They, it was a combination of uh, their intervention uh, as well as what effectively ended up being market failure. Failure. I, I would actually say market failure was a, a larger reason, and that it was at the point where the the government had to intervene. That there were there the problems were too entrenched. But just just to rewind the tape a little bit to make it a, a, a more seamless chronology here. Um, so I, I'd gotten back to the United States in March. And that's when everything started shutting down and everyone, I think, started to realize that everything was hitting the fan and this was going to be a pretty serious problem. This was not like pandemics of of the past uh, and this was going to be a really big deal. And to your to answer your, your earlier comment or to respond to your comment, I don't, I don't have background in medical dealings or import and export uh, other than to say that two of my skeleton sponsors are in the medical device. I was going to ask you if that was your um, connection into that, but maybe not yet. So, so it, it, it's I ended up consulting with my sponsor because she's been doing medical devices for years now. Um, so she runs Next Medical Products out of New Jersey. Um, and then they've got a, another business out of Salt Lake City called Bloxer. And so they, they make some actually really cool stuff. Uh, Next makes a sonogram gel. So this hypoallergenic or really high quality sonogram gel that they sell. And then Next, uh, sorry, Bloxer out of Salt Lake City, they make uh, x-ray attenuation devices. So, you know, those big lead aprons you have to wear if you're going in for an x-ray or something like that. They use a lead substitute that's non-toxic, it's machine washable, and it's half the weight of lead. So especially for a surgeon who's trying to do surgery for eight hours at a time, they're not weighed down by a heavy lead vest. They can wear one of the Bloxer products and um, presumably have a much better experience and a better surgical procedure. And so anyway, um, my friend and sponsor, Julia, she she's the CEO of those two companies. And I had to, I had to call her and, and consult with her a few times because there's, there's all these FDA regulations uh, when it comes to medical devices. 
and how you're able to import and export. And, and I didn't know anything about it, but she she is a very bright woman and she was able to get me up to speed on a, a lot of that. But the way that uh, the opportunity actually presented itself for me was through a, a friend at the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, uh, based in Lausanne, Switzerland. And uh, this friend called me up and saw, basically said, Nathan, I've, I've seen all the reports from the United States. You guys are getting hammered and you don't have enough PPE. You don't have enough of that personal protective equipment. Uh, you, you'd see these surgeons that are wearing ski goggles or wearing raincoats because they didn't have enough PPE to, to treat all these COVID patients. And so this friend, he said, look, I've got this contact. Um, a good buddy of mine runs this medical device company and they've got all these suppliers in China. Um, and they've got this line for tens of millions of masks that we can try and get routed to the US. And he just straight up asked me, do you have any buyers? Do you know who would be willing to, to buy all this PPE? I said, I, I don't, but give me 48 hours and I'll see if I can find anybody. Um, and so what I did uh, was I ended up hitting up the, the Princeton alumni uh, message boards. Uh, so I, I was very fortunate to have gone to Princeton for my undergraduate education. The Princeton alumni community is really strong and they've got these great connections um, and, and it's a very supporting uh, network of people. And so I just I hit up the, the message boards uh, for the Princeton alumni group and and ask, look, I've got this potential supply line of tens of millions of masks, surgical grade masks for the U.S. These are the kind of the prices that they're looking at. Uh, do you guys know anyone who would buy them? And within minutes, I had a flood of emails from all over the country saying, yes, we need masks. We are, there's a shortage of PPE. Can you get gloves? Can you get all this other stuff? And so I just assembled a giant spreadsheet. And then when I was able to organize the whole spreadsheet, it worked out to be about, I think it was connections to six US state governor's offices, 12 uh, hospital networks or healthcare networks, and then a handful of brokers. And so I just amassed an email list and said, this, all right, this is my launching point. I'll see what kind of supplies that we can get from uh, from my friend and his his contacts. And if you guys are interested, let me know and we'll see if we can put together a deal. And it snowballed from there. And that was the starting point. And then it ended up just turning into this giant six or eight week long uh, crazy affair. So, so how many masks did you, I mean, how much stuff did you end up being personally involved in bringing in? That, that, and that's the, the tragic part of it all was, was very little, a handful. It was, it was a handful of boxes. Um, a lot of, a lot of the stuff from China that we had originally intended to bring those tens of millions that all got shut down. Um, and so that ended up, uh, not working out at all with my, my original friend at the IOC, um, but what ended up what ended up developing instead was I, I got in touch with through another Princeton alum uh, with a Yale graduate. Uh, her name's Evan McMullen. She's a 2012 Yale graduate. And we were talking on the phone and we, we realized we were having a lot of the same problems. That we were hitting a lot of these same roadblocks. And within five minutes of talking to her on the phone, I realized that this woman is really sharp. She's really bright. Her brain and her mouth are just this fire hose of information and understanding, and she gets the the problem and she gets the situation. And so I straight up asked her if she wanted to team up and if we could put our resources together and see if we could solve some of these problems. And, and she said, sure. I said, 
yeah, let's let's give it a shot. And so Evan and I ended up partnering and we ended up doing uh, essentially cooperative vetting of suppliers uh, all across the world, mostly in Asia, though, um, Taiwan, Hong Kong, mainland China. And we ended up working together and seeing if we could get some of these partners to help deliver products to the USA. Um, and the, one of the big issues that came up really quickly was that there was a ton of fraud in the mar market, that people were just fundamentally dishonest and giving a bunch of bogus stuff. And so we had to come up with this rubric for how we were going to verify that the suppliers were legit. Uh, and we came up with a, a list of, of these potential solutions. They included like this video to video interviews. We had to uh, ask him a series of questions. We'd often ask for proof of life of, of the product. It's, it's like straight out of a hostage movie. These things that you see in Hollywood, you say, we, you know, you guys claim to have this supply. Can you show us a newspaper from today's date with, you know, draw the number 45 on it or something to specify that it, that's what it is. And you know, show it in front of the box of masks and then open the, the box up and sh show us what's in, in front of you. Because we had cases where we'd say, oh, yeah, we've got supplies, you know, in the U.S. And then we'd ask for these videos and they, they couldn't come through. Or, you know, you'd hear Chinese being spoken in the background when they said, yeah, we promised these box of masks are, are in Florida right now. There's not a, a ton of, of native Chinese speakers in, in Florida. And so we, we saw we saw very quickly that, that there was fraud and that there were there was going to be a lot of challenges in, in this process. And so, yeah, we teamed up and a lot of a lot of our work was vetting. And so we ended up getting a pretty good, what I thought was a pretty good uh, line of suppliers. The problem, the biggest problem on the buying side from the U.S. side of things, though, uh, was risk aversion. There was a ton of risk aversion in the buyer side, uh, in the hospitals, uh, and, and with a lot of the governor's offices as well, too, because they're they're very used to doing their business in, in a particular way. Uh, and this is common to medical devices where you have to deliver a product and then the hospital will pay on, say, a net 30, net, net 60 or net 90 um, day inventory uh, or invoicing where they, they have that period of time to invoice. So they take the product and then they pay you later. And this was totally flipped during the pandemic complete 180, where instead of being a buyer's market, it was absolutely a seller's market. And the sellers would sell to whoever had cash right away, who, who can get rid of the product, you know, the quickest. And, and, and that, that fundamental mismatch, where usually it's the hospitals setting the rules and uh, they're the ones who are making the policy, they don't have that power anymore. And it's, it, was, it completely shifted to a seller's market. And that was that was a big fundamental mismatch, and there, it, I, there I've got a very poignant story that I could share if uh, if it's if it's cool with you guys to to illustrate this. Yeah, yeah, go for it. So there there was one one uh, supplier that we were working with that Evan and I had uh, had interviewed and we had vetted, um, which in itself was was interesting. Uh, because of how how little there was known about this this supplier, and this that's where we start is potential supplier. Look up you know, LinkedIn profiles, Google search them, see what's available. And this guy, there was there was not a lot on him. American guy, uh, based in the Western U.S., um, but as we we found out, he's very private. 
And so that's why he didn't have a, a large Google presence or LinkedIn presence or, or social media presence. But initially it raised some red flags and so we weren't, we weren't sure. Uh, we ended up getting him on the phone, getting him on these Skype calls and Zoom calls, and he turned out to be a, a really solid lead. And it, it turns out he, it, one of the reasons why he was so private is because he's worth tens of millions of dollars, a, a really, really wealthy individual um, who ended up making a, a part of his fortune with medical patents. And that was sort of how we were able to verify him is we found his name on these medical patents. And we said, okay, that's that seems legit. And then any anytime we asked for anything, he came through. Certifications from the factory, certifications of the masks, uh, proof of life videos, anything that we asked, he came through for for us with. And so we said, okay, that's that's legit. And he had this great connection. It was to a, a 3M plant in Europe. It was in Poland, making N95 respirators, which were in America was and still is in desperate need of, because they the the healthcare workers need these to prevent them from getting exposed to to COVID. And so we were interviewing this guy and. And we said, what you know, what what's your problem? Why, if you've got this supply line of, of masks, what, well, you know, why why can't we get them across? What what's the holdup? He and he had even offered to take his private jet, fly over to Poland, and then import some of them if we could find a buyer. But there were no buyers willing to to come to terms with not just the sales price, they, but just to take inventory and have have the liability on the hospital side because for whatever reason they, they didn't want to pay up front or they didn't want to uh, risk using these masks without sort of independent certification. And this guy, he's, he's, he bleeds red, white, and blue, the supplier out of Western USA. And so he, uh, he, he was do, bending over backwards and trying to do everything he could and trying to hold supply because he had this line of millions of N95s he was trying to say, look, I'm, I'm trying to get these to America. I'm trying to do the right thing and be a patriot and get these to help help our, our frontline workers. But none of these hospitals were willing to take that risk. And so in the meantime, the Israeli government flies a private jet up to the factory in Poland filled with cash, tens of millions of dollars of pure cold hard cash to buy the supply line there in Poland. And so what's what's this guy going to do? He had to take a huge financial risk himself. He put his own medical device patents on the line as collateral for this supply line in Poland. And he's trying to direct these supplies to the United States. But then he's got this private jet full of cash from the Israelis, which also represent other nations in the Middle East, if I remember correctly. Um, what's this guy going to do? What's What's the rational choice for him versus trying to deal with Americans that aren't willing to play ball and aren't willing to take the risk in this supplier's market, the seller's market, or he's got a literal plane load of cash waiting for him right then and there to de-risk himself so that he can take his, his medical patents uh, off of the, the collateral block. And, and it, it was an easy decision for him. And I certainly can't blame him because that's I, he, wanted, he wanted to do everything right for the USA and to and to get those supplies over but it's at some point the way the incentive structure has been built and the way the in writ large the american medical system has been working 
it creates market failures. And th that was a prime example of a market failure in the US healthcare system that has prevented PPE from getting to the people that need it most. And which is why we have had this absurd death rate, one of the many reasons why. But there's, it, and, I, and it, got, it gave me a very intimate and very up close look at why we're in this pandemic and why it's such a catastrophic pandemic specifically for the USA. If you remember, I was I was in Korea at the Korean outbreak and saw their response. And then I got back to the States and saw the United States' response. And it's it's mind-blowing how different it was and how well the Koreans have handled it, where they've had a death rate of, as of today, two people per 100,000 citizens, whereas the United States were languishing with over 112 deaths per 100,000 citizens. That's a 5,600% difference when they both had the first recorded COVID case on the exact same day. It's To me, it's mind-blowing. It's sad. It's tragic. And, and, and it was so frustrating, too, having to do all this work and organizing all this, uh, this effort and this partnerships uh, and try, just trying to get – trying to help the situation. and. So meeting so so much resistance yeah nathan what what i'm curious about is the um uh, that's yeah, that's a very eye-opening story for sure but the the risk so the risk aversion on these on the side of the buyers or potential buyers the hospitals uh what would you say is was the major source of risk aversion for them was it was it just the um the regulatory system the red tape uh, everything that they had, all the hoops they had to jump through without any real strong guarantee. What what was what did you identify as being maybe, and I know there's multiple parts, it's a com complex issue, but what would you identify as, as being the one common hang-up that slowed everything down in the supply chain uh, in a time where common sense didn't really prevail, which happens sadly quite a bit? Right. And so uh, you're right, there's a lot of factors involved, but the number one that I would put above all was liability for getting sued mm, yep yep that yep. that would that would have been number one yeah um yeah and and that's why so in some cases i didn't deal directly with hospitals i was dealing with brokers mm -hmm. and so the brokers if the brokers were gonna to finish a deal where they would say they would be representative you know, of uh, of a bunch of hospitals or a hospital network the broker themselves would say you know i love this deal i love that you've got all these these N95 respirators available. I need to see a sample and I need to have an independent lab testing of it. Yeah. That way they could they could cover their own butt yeah. in case things went wrong and they could say, look, I've got the certification. This isn't on me. This is on someone else. Hospitals, they would say the exact same thing. If they were to get a, a bunch of these masks and if for some reason the, the masks turned out to be faulty, which did happen, there sure. were fraudulent deliveries of masks. Yeah. And so there's this one case we were talking with the, the one supplier and the, the medical patent holder in the Western U.S. who had the, the Poland contract. He had, he had tried donating uh, a bunch of masks to a hospital, and the hospital threw the masks away. <laughs> they wouldn't use them because they, they said, we can't take the risk on ourselves that these masks aren't as advertised. We can't verify through independent labs that they have the filtration rate that, that you're advertising here. And because we can't verify it, we don't want to take the risk of getting sued in case something goes wrong. So we're just going to toss them. Yeah. And so they took all these masks and they threw them in a dumpster. You know, and it's, it's hard. Yeah, the, I mean, the, 
the irony of the the irony that the majority of citizens are now using makeshift now using makeshift PPE, right? In any any manner of construction, you know, from some bedazzled bullshit that they got at the parking lot of Walmart or, or you know, something that is not, you know, some copper infused something that's being sold online. Um, so that would I would venture a guess that well over 50 percent of the PPE that's in use today is has nothing even closely associated with a certification or a validation or even a spit test. You know, and, and we had a guest on some time ago, buddy of mine, Dylan Costa, who uh, shared with us a story about a funeral that he went to. So they had a death in the family and um, he made an interesting observation about how uh, everyone showed up at the funeral. I think either he was talking, maybe Jared, you remember better than I do, but he was talking about the fact that they were all hugging or maybe he talked about the fact that nobody was really wearing masks as he went thinking about it and how that represented like this threshold. Like there was a threshold upon which people would cross where, you know, they would, they would have a totally different perspective. Like they, they kind of cast some concerns aside. It is interesting to me that the market didn't cross that threshold. Like the market was able to say, eh, you know what? Uh, I'm not going to take that chance. Like it wasn't bad enough for them for the market to to overcome that. Well, you know, to add something to that as well, we, Nate, we, or Nathan, sorry, I'm, you, I'm, I think of you as Nate because, you know, Paul just called you Nate behind your back the whole time. So <laughs> sorry, man, I apologize. But Nathan. You, you ask, Nate, ask Nathan what I was calling you behind your back, you son of a no, bitch. No, I don't, I don't want to know. I don't want to know. I don't want <laughs> Like one of 20 different things, I'm sure. But uh, when you said it was fear of, of being sued, so I spent 11 years as an insurance broker long time ago. And uh, and in that time, you get a really intimate understanding of how that side of the medical experience works, uh, both as somebody who's in, you know, I've never worked for anybody in my entire professional career. So even though I used to sell employee benefits, I've never had employee benefits bought or paid for for myself. So I, I know the experience as an individual having to navigate this market. Uh, when people start to try and tackle the problems that we have in healthcare. Oftentimes they look at, well, insurance prices are too high. We need to, we need to get insurance prices down. We need to focus in on that. And my, my thinking there, and you've, you've verified this as well, is that that's the wrong place to look. The insurance prices are high uh, because the cost of health care is high. And if you want to know why the cost of health care is high, it's not because everybody becomes a doctor because they want to drive a Lamborghini. I'm sure some doctors are laughing and saying, I don't make a salary to drive a Lamborghini. But it's because uh, uh, all of the insurance and the uh, uh, protection for liability that they have to buy at the hospital level, uh, you know, the individual uh, physicians, the private practices. The way I like to put it is we live in the United States of litigation. Like health costs are so high and the health world is so high because it is just, it's like chum in the water for lawyers. It's chum in the water to sue. I can just imagine like you, you buy that uh, PPE, one, all it takes is one mask out of that entire batch that they can make a case to say that mask failed. And because of that, this person, this person's family died. And because of that, you're out millions of dollars because everybody's going after it, right? It's like, it's just, it becomes yeah, a perfect breeding sure. ground to milk the system. And it's, yeah, they, we have tons of problems in this country with the healthcare system uh, that need to be fixed. Um, and we don't have to necessarily go into that, but the fact that you point out the number one fear was being sued is like, that's why we, that's, that is the heart of what's wrong with, uh, with our healthcare system in this country is that we're focused on the wrong thing. 
you had a really unique bird's eye view, I think, of the pandemic, the response to it, how it unfolded, more so than I think anybody we've spoken to, um, in so much as you had that experience in Korea. So you saw it first. It's like we talk a lot about putting your confidence in information that you can validate yourself, right? Because, you know, the information ecosystem, it's not liberal media, not conservative media, it's just corporate media, you know, it's all designed to keep your attention. So there's not a lot of confidence in the information that's coming out. And so you put a lot of confidence in what, you know, what people can verify firsthand, which you have done in a number of places. So having seen that kind of bird's eye view, I mean, what, what were the things, if you could articulate, because I could probably look it up online and find some bullshit story to tell me why some other place did such a better job, but you were there. Like, what was the difference between what Korea was doing and what we were doing that probably made that difference in the long run, do you think? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Korea is, I think, a, a great example. And I can also give some examples from here in Europe, since I, I'm living in Europe for this winter. Yeah, you got a great um, perspective there. And, that, and and just actually to add to that, to, to my bird's eye view and to the experience with, with pandemics is um, my, my thesis at Princeton was actually on the AIDS pandemic in East Africa. And so I, I, it, it involved two summers of field research in East Africa, uh, in hospitals, in these, in these conditions that you cannot imagine, the, the, the level of poverty and the level of sickness that combine, and, and as well as with these, these comorbidities that you don't see in the Western world, you don't see in first world countries. And it, it was, uh, in many ways, a shocking uh, upfront, very visceral uh, education in uh, some of the lowest levels of humanity that, that you can see that the level of sickness and the level of poverty and the level of disease that, that exists, that still exists in this world today, that many people in, in the Western world and in the United States are, they're not exposed to. And so just, at least, just to add some color to that and add some background is that uh, I, I've had a very intimate experience with uh, pandemics previously, and which is partly why I, I felt obliged to jump in and, and try and help out at least where I could with with this pandemic. Um, and as for the 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 current pandemic with the COVID and comparing it to some of the other countries, with Korea, we had we were at a race in Pyeongchang uh, when that first case was recorded, and immediately the Koreans had masks. They had hand sanitizers, they had policies in place for what to do, they had checks going on, and the mask wearing was universal right away. No qualms, no arguing, no, this is against my freedom and I'm being inconvenienced and any of that. 100% compliance with masks everywhere, and especially in Seoul. After the races were done, I went down from Pyeongchang into Seoul. I did not see a single person on the streets of Seoul that was not wearing a mask. And the debate there, as it evolved after after I left Korea, it was not, do I wear a mask or don't I wear a mask, which is how the debate has generally been framed in the United States. The debate there was, do I wear a surgical mask or do I wear an N95 respirator? As it wasn't mask or no mask. It was mask or higher quality N95, or in their case, KN95 respirator. And that that was their debate and that was their struggle. And so the, their their level of awareness, their ledger, their level of education, and their their willingness to to stop the virus quickly and effectively was was miles ahead. And I think you can chalk that up to a, a one a cultural difference, but two the, an experiential difference because they were exposed to SARS-CoV-1, the original SARS-CoV virus, 
Uh, and they, they learned from that. The Koreans knew that we are susceptible to this and we have to put some strong policies in place. And so they learned from that. They, they had a very, very acute uh, learning experience um, from the previous SARS-CoV uh, pandemic uh, that, they were able, that they were able to make the adjustments and to change their, their national attitude uh, towards prevention and to, coming, to come together um, and to, to wear a mask immediately. The other things the Koreans did really well is they tested really effectively. Quickly, effectively, they had drive-through testings. You could find answers on the spot. They had uh, public health campaigns, uh, leadership from the top on down, uh, saying that this virus is a priority. We have to stop it as best as possible. And I don't think there's, I think the closest example you might get to a perfect response might be Taiwan, actually. But South Korea has done really well, uh, by and large, I would say. And, and I, I saw that up front. I saw it walking the streets of Seoul and just everybody immediately knew what to do. And then once, that's the other thing too, is that part of that cultural shift is if you're around everyone who is wearing masks and you think about not wearing a mask, you stand out. You, there's this tremendous social pressure on you. And when you see everyone around you doing something, you're the lone guy who doesn't want to do it. It, it, it feels completely awkward. And that, that cultural, it's what I would call passive peer pressure. That passive peer pressure to wear that mask is, is tremendously strong. Did and they, so it just sort of reinforces Did they it. shut down a lot of stuff as well? Did they, did they close everything down? Not while I was there. I do believe they did, they did have to have a lockdown, if I recall correctly, but not, not while I was there, not right away. Um, I ended up leaving and going back to Europe before that took place, I believe. Um, yeah, as as best as I recall. Yeah. Yeah. I, I I want. I mean, and and do you do you think that they had that plan already in place? They just pulled it off the shelf and pulled the trigger on it. Was that a huge part of it, or was it just that they that they had that they had that memory from the last one and they knew what to do, or did they? Was it something that they they had prepared for differently? I I would say a lot of it was preparation. It was very yeah. deliberate preparation that they they knew they had a playbook, and they and they followed the playbook. Um, and then they made those improvisational adjustments where they needed to. Um, and, and it's it, it, it worked out. It's so far, it's worked out really well for the Koreans. They've had a spike recently, but it's it's again better to have a spike later in a pandemic than early on. Well, and they, this is also. A, oh, go ahead, Nathan. I was just going to say that it's it's better generally at the outset of, of a pandemic when you don't know very much about the pathogen or about the clinical response. Basically, you have a really high level of uncertainty and a really low level of knowledge. And then over time, those start to converge and then they sort of invert. And so you've seen that actually in the way this the mortality rates, the case mortality rates of this pandemic have presented themselves. Um, because at the beginning, when you don't know a lot about the treatment, you don't know things like proning can help. You don't know that dexamethasone is a highly effective drug. You, you have to clamp down harder and you have to have a really good initial response to stop that while the uncertainty level is high. And when uncertainty is high by association, risk is high as well. And so then over time, as that uncertainty drops and as your knowledge grows and you figure out what these possible clinical paths are to prevent uh, more deaths, that's when you get to a stage where it's quote unquote safer, or at least it's uh, the risk of mortality is lessened because you have the time and because you have the experience to figure out what works and what doesn't work. And so that was also another critical thing that Korea and some other nations too have, have realized that you have to clamp down hard, quickly, and fast at the outset 
when that uncertainty is high and when the risk is high and when knowledge is low so that you can invert them over time and have a healthier population and then get re resume normalcy to some degree, hopefully down the line, if, if you did it effectively the way, say, New Zealand has does it, done it. Well, you know, something else, too. I mean, South Korea, like a lot of other you know, first world nations, they have a, a centralized system for healthcare. They have a national healthcare system. I think that's one of our yes. other big problems here, too, is that our healthcare system, for as much as people like to, you know, oh, we have the greatest healthcare system in the world. I'm like, bullshit. We, no, we don't. You know, maybe in certain situations, but the distribution, the management of it is an absolute train wreck. And this pandemic is showing how vulnerable our system is in that regard. You know, and so I think about because oftentimes people like to say, well, if we just do what Europe did or if we just do what South Korea did, but no, no, we don't have the infrastructure or the incentive structure to to have things deployed at such um, at such a rate or to be as efficient because there are far too many hoops and far too many different private. I mean, just go to one hospital and you may when my wife had to have a procedure done, she had to call to verify that all three of the different private providers in the hospital that is in network, that the providers inside of that hospital were also inside of our network. It is an absolute shit show. Absolute it shit is. show. And it, if you don't have that, you cannot, you cannot look or model at any other country who has a centralized system and say, well, if we just follow that playbook, well, you've got to change the whole system to follow that playbook. And that, I think, is where we really come to a head in this country with our healthcare because it's unsustainable. And we're never going to get on top of this thing if we keep pretending like, eh, you know, I mean, well, we will get on top of it. But what about the next pandemic? Right. We'll get on top of it either through herd immunity or through vaccination. But what about the next one that really sucks? That starts totally off young people, you know, that just has 10 times worse than this. Totally. I, I agree. I agree with you. On, on on all those accounts, Jared, uh, it, it's um, it's it's kind of a, a, a national embarrassment. Both the response, in in my in my opinion, to the response to the pandemic, and and it exposes the the failings of the United States healthcare system in general. And so, one of the books to to not go too deep into that topic, but to to make a, a follow up recommendation, if your listeners are are interested, one of the books I, I read during this uh, this summer's pandemic was a book called Which Country Has the Best Healthcare? Very simple, very straightforward. And it was <laughs> written by it, it was written by Ezekiel Emanuel. He's an MD and PhD. He's an oncologist and a bioethicist. He's a very well-qualified guy to, to chime in on this. And he and wrote a, a, a what I thought was a, a good book, a very thorough book, uh, looking at a bunch of different types of healthcare systems in a bunch of different countries how they did it, where, where their incentives were, what the payments were like, uh, how, how do you manage this uh, this mysterious good. Healthcare, if you think about it, it's not a normal good. It's not a normal economic good. It doesn't follow the normal supply and demand curves. And it's it's one that is highly prone to these market failures, mm -hmm. not just in the PPE examples that, that I explained, but in general, healthcare and receiving healthcare is excessively prone to market failures. And most countries realize this, and they create systems that avoid those market failures. But the U.S. has has not done as great a job in doing that. And and to spoil the ending of the book, I suppose for you, but it's the the author, Dr. Emanuel. He he ranked these countries in, into four different tiers: the top tier, second tier, third tier, and then bottom tier. And not surprisingly, in his multi-dimensional, it was about 22 dimensions of analysis in this 600-page book. 
the United States is in the lowest tier with China. <laughs> the U.S. and China share the lowest tier for the health for their healthcare systems out of all the different types of healthcare systems in in the modern uh, type one developed world global economy uh, type systems that exist. And it was it you know thoroughly unsurprising, but also really sad as well too. That 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 America is relegated to that that bottom level. But anyway, it's if for the for your listeners who are interested, I, I would I would recommend that book. Which country has the best healthcare? Exactly. You know how it ends. It's more it's more if you want to see why. It's it's the it's the methodology behind it and that and it, what was a very thorough analysis. Because as you mentioned, there there's there's so many factors. There's the litigation, the malpractice. There's access. There's pricing. There's the need. There's you know, in a federalist system. How do you how do you do it? And so, by do, by evaluating across about two dozen different uh, variables, it, it it makes for a a pretty thorough. I'm sure it's imperfect and can be critiqued, but it's uh, a very thorough analysis of different types of healthcare systems. Yeah. How, what's the field like in in uh, in Austria now? I mean, how, what's your day to day like? Day to day. So Austria is actually in lockdown right now. Um, so it's it's uh, it's not it's not the most exciting life I'd say right now, but it's um, work is still people are still able to go to work. It's mainly no socializing, no bars, no restaurants. Uh, the Austrian government has come out with five different reasons. It's essentially uh, essential reasons that you're allowed to leave your household, and it's you know things like going to the grocery store, going to work, um, going to the doctor, uh, things of that nature. Um, and so I can still get outside. I can still go to work. My work is going to train. So they, the skeleton track is still open. So I was training today. I took a couple of runs down the skeleton track. That was my work. That was my my sort of outdoor experience. Um, and then the other thing I had to do is I had to take another COVID test today. I've taken a lot of COVID tests. And that that's another big difference, I would say, between the United States and uh, and Europe, at least Western Europe, where I've been, is the testing here is so much faster and so much more efficient. So in the U.S., at least over the summer, uh, before these different modeling jobs, I would have to take a COVID test. I have to prove your COVID negative before you're allowed on set and before you can, you know, be exposed to other people or the photographers, the clients, and whatnot. And getting a test in America, just to go back to the the headaches provided by the, the American healthcare system, it was. Uh, it was it was like pulling teeth in a couple yeah. instances and just it, waiting in long lines. I had to go once to try and get tested. There were too many cars. They shut it down. I had to come back the next day. I had to wait in line um, and 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 just waiting for results. None of these results came back within their estimated 48 hour timeline. Uh, and so it's just this massive headache of just trying to get tested and getting tested is so critical. You've, I'm sure you've heard it all before. You have to get tested. You have to know if you're positive and if you can possibly pass along this virus so that you know whether or not you can quarantine or whether or not you can go to work. Um, here in Austria, I've taken a bunch of tests as well. Every single one comes back in writing, signed by a doctor by the end of the day. I took a COVID test this morning. I had the signed the signed medical document by the doctor in my email inbox before this podcast started. Yeah, that's the level of efficiency that they have. And yeah. Austria has offered complete nationwide testing for every single citizen yeah. following their last lockdown, so that they know that we can have a very accurate count of how many people 
have this virus in our country. The, and the, the fact that they can do that so quickly, it's, it's such a reassurance and it gives you, it's, it's so much more liberating to have that process. Because now, now that I have a negative COVID test, I now know that I can travel to Germany and that I'm eligible for my next race. I have to go, there's a, again, I'll have to get tested in Germany once I get there, but the results are instantaneous. Rapid tests have always come back in 20 minutes. And then the PCR tests that actually have to go back, go to a lab and get analyzed, they're all done by the end of the day on every single instance that I've done here in Europe, which is the opposite of the US where none of my tests had come back even within 48 hours. Well, and that varies state by state too. I know in the summer, totally. Georgia is where my wife's from. And uh, so the other Pearl of the South, Columbus, Georgia, Fort Benning, yeah, mm-hmm. Pearl of the South part two. So, <laughs> but you know, my wife, her, my mother-in-law was in Georgia and uh, she had to get a COVID test, but there was nowhere to get one. I mean, so she's not living like, you know, with one stoplight, I mean, for as much as I like to, you know, uh, take a dump on Columbus, uh, it's actually, you know, it's a it's a good sized city. It's like the second or the third largest city in Georgia, and uh, there's plenty of places where you would just assume the infrastructure is there. COVID testing should be available, uh, but they just weren't. They weren't testing enough. They didn't have enough tests. The supply chain was broken down. I have no idea what the deal was uh, with Georgia because in North Carolina, if we want to go get a test, we just go to CVS, right? So every state seemed to be different depending on, and it, it always seems to be choked up in the, uh, the political pipeline, right? Like which narrative are we allowing to dictate our decisions about what we bring to our state, you know? And um, uh, it's, it's bizarre. I mean, I can, I, you know, one question I've got for you around this without just going on about testing is when you take that test, and I have no, I have no idea whether it's more efficient or, or less efficient, or if this is even a problem. But I know for us, if we go to CVS to take a test, and we do our test, well, that test has a private company's name on it, and you drop it into the private company box, so it goes off to a private lab. You know, believe me, I am all for like privatization. You know, running with this. What I love about America is like, hey, you know, let me build a business, let me do that thing. I'm not like. Yeah. But when it comes to public health and it comes to health care, which I do firmly believe is a human right, uh, that these things should not be thrown into the mix of, you know, markets, profit and loss. And, hey, how do we make sure we're staying, you know, true to our entrepreneurial or free market capitalism for health care? Right. It's like, no, no, no. I think those things need to be separated. Uh, did you have that? Were they using private companies to, to test or did they have the infrastructure to test? nationwide in Austria. Um, yeah, I guess that's my question. Is it, you know, is that the case there or is it, or is it more private? I'm not sure because my German is not that strong, uh, <laughs> that I can decipher, decipher what all, what all the different writing is. I, there was a, there was a lot of gesticulating in the, in the lab testing today because I, my, my German is, um, is not great despite having dated some Austrian women. It's, and so there was a lot of, there, <laughs> There was it's because they want to practice their English with you. I lived well, yeah, in Germany when I was a kid. Most yeah. people do speak English. Yeah. This, the, the lab technician today at, at my COVID testing didn't um, didn't speak didn't speak English, unfortunately, and my German is still pretty broken. So there was there was a lot of going back and forth of, of figuring out um, some of the paperwork involved, and but it, it, we we got it done. Like it, it worked, and um, I was able to stumble my way through with broken German to 
to, to get everything set and in order. But but that doesn't help me answer your question as to what level is private and what level is is public. My guess though is it's um, it, it's it's mostly going to be state run. But the the federal government's going to be running it, organizing it, um, even if they do out, outsource some of it to uh, perhaps private labs or other other private companies. But it seems from what I've observed, it seems like it's pretty much run by the government by the state as is most of their their healthcare system from my understanding. Yeah. So one of the things I typically have to do at the, you know, after an episode is I, especially when we have a really remarkable guest is I've got to invest quite a bit of time in rebuilding Jared's fragile, fragile ego, because it usually takes a pr pretty big hit. And uh, I mean, this is, this is, this is, a, a, you know, no exception because you've got all this remarkable experience. And just a, So I got, I got to, we got to take you down a notch. You got to tell us about the crash. I saw the video oh, before yeah. I read about it. Dude, I was like, oh, damn, because I mean, so you got you got to tell us about that crash before we run oh. out of time. Oh, is this a totally. skeleton no, crash? That, that's yeah. Skeleton crash. OK, yeah, can you for, for those who don't know a skeleton is I'd never heard of it until my cousin years ago had actually qualified for the U.S. Olympic team. I was like, I didn't even know you did this. This is the one that we Which, think we're pretty sure he's in the CIA because he drops off the radar and only uses burner phones. So it's like, and then we find out he's like a competitive skeleton racer and qualified for the U.S. team. It's like, who the hell are you, man? So tell us what skeleton is because I, I hey, think a lot of people don't who, know who, what it wait, is. Wait, who's your cousin? George who's Nichols. Your cousin? I'm curious. George Nichols. George Nichols. Uh, I don't think I know. Him. This is years ago, um, like maybe 15 okay. years ago. Or so yeah. So. Okay. So yeah. Anyway, skeleton. It's the Olympics sport winter olympic sport you push this sled glorified cafeteria tray looking thing jump on it and you slide down an ice chute at 80 miles an hour in a time trial format trying to be the first cross the line. Head, head, first. Head, first. Head, head first head first head first that's important it's it's insane right and and so i had uh, two world cup races earlier this season here in austria and it was the first time in my career in in 10 years of racing uh, i had actually hit my head on a wall and it was at this the it was it was after the finish line. I actually had a, a really solid run, and the outrun here is uh, it's really poorly designed to put it lightly. It doesn't go uphill enough to slow you down with gravity, and then it's not straight enough that you can break. And so they put these foam mats out, and you hit these foam mats to try and decelerate yourself. And I just hit one of these mats at an awkward angle, and it shot me right into the wall. And so my helmet actually hit the the icy concrete wall on the other side. And, and I was shocked. I, luckily, I wasn't hurt. I I, I, I was fine, but I, I still got checked out by a doctor. Um, I couldn't complete my second run. I, I, I couldn't finish the race. I only got the one heat in. Um, and, and I luckily just had a little bruise on my head. Um, and no no brain damage, you know, knock, knock on wood. And hopefully the one and only time that I, I hit my head in this sport. But it was it was kind of frightening. Is it, it's yeah a little, yeah. but I guess so is every skeleton run. And in some, some sense, it, it reminds you of your mortality and it, it makes you feel alive, which is maybe why I'm still doing it, you know, in my thirties now and, <laughs> and trying to hang on for a couple more seasons. But, um, yeah, that, it was a very sobering moment. It was, it was a little bit of a, a shocking moment and Paul saw the, the video of it and the, or that's the, there's a still photo as well. And it's, yeah, not something I'm eager to do again. That's for sure. Well, it's like one of those things. It's like when when you see who was the uh, I don't remember who's the NASCAR guy who was killed. Um, was it Richard Petty? Was he killed? He hit. Uh, uh, it doesn't matter. 
whoever it was hit hit the wall at like 120 miles an hour, but the crash looked really unremarkable. And so when you right. heard that someone had been killed and you're like, oh, wow, that was. And so when I saw you do that again, it was at the end of the run and it, you know, it, it didn't really stand out like a crash crash, but then you were just lying there. And I was like, and they, you could tell, and they were all kind of excitedly talking and then people came running over and then you were just sort of lying there. And then I read your description of it, how you were like, just lying there like, oh, damn, man, am I, am I okay? Because the adrenaline rush kind of hides that sometimes. Yeah, um, yeah, it was pretty, I mean, it was pretty, um, I, I hesitate to call it traumatic to watch, but I mean, I know you and I see you lying there and, you know, knowing that those things can be very deceiving, those kind of accidents can be very deceiving, the impact that they have, you know, um, and you were just kind of lying there lifeless for, for, seemed like kind of a long, for a little while. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and that was very deliberate, too, because like I said, you, you have this this massive adrenaline rush from a skeleton run, and it usually takes a minute or two for your heart rate to calm down and for your body to sort of find that equilibrium again. And because I just hit my head, I, I knew I'd hit it. I, I could feel the impact, and I, there was a sensation there on that spot on my head. And I, and I just thought, holy cow, I, I just made a collision with an ice-covered concrete wall what the heck is going on? I need to do a full system check, sort of top to bottom. Just yeah. I, I didn't want to move. And so, and, and I thought, okay, you know, can I feel my toes? Can I feel my fingers? Uh, do I think everything's okay? Yes, I think it is. I can try and move. And so there was definitely a period where I just, I didn't want to do anything just because I was, I was so shocked and I just wanted to, to give it a second to see if, you know, am I actually okay? And it, again, knock on wood, thankfully I, I was all right. Well, silver lining here, silver lining here is that you have a great excuse for coming on this show one day because we like to say people come to this show and, and you know, for their popularity and their self-respect to die. So if you ever get any shit for it, say, look, I had a head injury and uh, I even talked yeah. about it on the show. So, yeah, that's perfect out, man. Yeah. I mean, you're, yes, you're yes. very deliberate about about saying, hey, look, I'm not technically an Olympic athlete because you haven't gone there yet. Um, you know, world class, obviously. Um and, uh, you know, world champion, I think you were number one in the U.S. and then number 18 world overall, right, just recently. Right. Um, so, yeah, yeah, my, that's right. Current yeah, so, world. So, so how so what what are our prospects of seeing you in the next Olympics? I, I am lo very much looking forward to being able to say, I know that dude. <laughs> uh, if I stay healthy and I keep competing the way the way that I am and in the way that I have been past season or so um, should be pretty good. But I was also a favorite to make the Pyeongchang games and I, I busted a disc in my back. And so it, things happen and you can't, you can't predict it and you can't, can't rely on it. Um, and yeah, you were right. Uh, um, at one time it was the 2016 world championships. I was the, the top ranked American. I'd actually beat Matt Antoine, one of our other classmates at, uh, at Tuck. Uh, he was just having an off season. He, he far better skeleton racer than, than I'll ever be. Uh, Olympic bronze medalist set all sorts of American records, uh, he just had a bad year, and I was able to capitalize on it and was able to beat him um, at that world championship. So that was, that was the only time that I was the, the top-ranked American. Um, and, well, hopefully if I stay healthy and hopefully if I, things get on track and the, the world's back in order and vaccine gets out there and there's a return to normalcy, uh, hopefully about a year from now. Actually, uh, one year and one day, I will know whether or not I make the Olympic team. It's oh, January awesome. 9th of yeah. 2022 all right we'll watch out for that announcement so so um i know it's uh it's getting later in in austria i i, I thought for a moment i felt a little bad because i was like oh we're going to interrupt you know nate's friday and nathan's friday night out and i was like oh there is no friday night out over there anymore but never, but nevertheless 
Um, <laughs> you know, uh, so we always ask kind of a kind of as a as a closer because you know th- this this little podcast. You know, all podcasts are bullshit. At the end of the day, you know, you're always two degrees away. If you just shift the camera or the mic two degrees one way or the other, you're going to see, oh, that guy's in his garage and that guy's in his, you know, bonus playroom. So they're, so they're all bullshit. But, you know, but in, in our little our little show here, we always, you know, it's it's predicated on this idea that, um, you know, we never want to marginalize anybody's suffering. We don't want to diminish the, you know, the pain that people have gone through. We know it's been difficult for some people, but we also know that it's a tremendous opportunity um, and so this show is all about, you know, finding the silver linings and talking to people about the, the positives that they've taken away from the experience. You have had a vast experience over the last year, for sure. So if you had to kind of put a pin in something that you would say was a silver lining for you, what, what might it be? Other than being on this show. But go yeah. Ahead. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of obvious, but I want to make yeah, sure you that's felt That's a late like, entry. Yeah. yeah. Goes, it goes without saying. <laughs> Uh, honor, honor of the year for sure. Uh, sil- silver lining for the past year, though, it's, I, I, I still feel lucky that I'm able to compete. Like I said, it's n- not just the fact that I'm in my 30s when when most athletes and I still am thinking of retirement. I, I'm retired from Team USA, so there there is that. This is sort of my semi-retirement, but I'm thankful that I'm still competing. Um, that the IBSF, the governing body, has found a way to do lots of testing and have this mobile bubble that still allows me to to race. And I, I think that having sports is, it's it's a resemblance uh, of normalcy. And it, it, these race, the World Cup races get broadcast. They're, they're put on the Olympic channel or they're broadcast globally on YouTube. Um, and it provides entertainment and it provides escape for people in, in this really tough and really trying period. Um, and the fact that I can be a part of that and provide some of that, hopefully some of that inspiration and that sense of normalcy and that, that joy and that thrill that people get from competing at, at high level elite sports. Uh, I, I feel very lucky that, I, that I've been uh, a part of that and that hopefully I can continue to do so for certainly for this season and hopefully, hopefully through next season as well and through the Olympic games. That, that's probably what I would pick. Yeah, man, I'm just really glad that we, you know, we were able to weave our way through this, um, through all these stories that you shared in your holiday update. Um, and then, you know, getting, but you're the ultimate don't read a book by its cover kind of guy. You know what I mean? You know, look at a, you know, I mean, you look at a, a handsome skeleton athlete and you're not thinking that he spent two years, you know, studying the AIDS epidemic in the, you know, in the darkest, uh, you know, hardest, most austere parts of Africa. Um, and, and, and I'm really glad that we had that you know, we reconnected that you had the time and then we had a chance to kind of share some of your remarkable backstory and experiences because it's really, it's just fascinating. I mean, I just think with the risk of blowing smoke up your ass, you know, you're just a really, really cool guy. And I'm glad you were able to spend some time with us. I appreciate it. I appreciate it too. It's my, my pleasure. Happy to, happy to help out, contribute and share a couple stories and hopefully entertain some of your listeners. And um, yeah, there's certainly plenty that we could talk about and well hopefully one day i get the book published too and then that could be a whole conversation in and of itself as well definitely i was gonna say we like to bring back family show so we'd be yeah yeah, we'd be safe (laughs) we'd be safe talking about dirty little book yeah (laughs) (laughs) we'll have to save that one for part two you can give us the the preview but yeah it's been a pleasure nathan really has enjoyed this i definitely look forward to having you on again and uh I'm, i'm pretty impressed you know paul uh Paul, I'm, I'm more impressed with uh, uh, the friends that Paul has uh, because you definitely wouldn't think he has high-quality friends, you know, when you get to know him. And, you know, <laughs> no, it's, this has been great, man. I really enjoyed this. So, 
Yeah, excellent. Great. Thank you very much, Nathan. It's a it, and it's great to see you, man. Great to see you too. Thank you both again. It was, it was my pleasure being here, and uh, I hope you guys stay safe there over in the U.S. Definitely. Yeah, man. Good luck with the season. I'll be watching for you on the Olympic Channel for sure. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. <laughs> if you made it this far, you either fell asleep, are trapped under something heavy, or were genuinely interested in the episode. If you fell asleep, get some rest. If you're trapped under something heavy, get some help. If you were genuinely interested in the episode, tell your friends. Like, subscribe, share, download, do all those things. Press all those buttons. Spread the word. No matter how you got this far, we sincerely appreciate it. Thank you for listening. See ya!